Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. Today, we're focusing on education. Most ACONS listeners know that I homeschooled my three children for many years. Um, and as I bragged last week, they are all happy, successful, and with the exception of my youngest, uh, who's only 19, they are working in their fields and have been at young ages. My oldest got his bachelor's degree at 20 years old and has been working in educational game design for the last three and a half, four years. Uh, my daughter uh, just got her uh, certification as a veterinary assistant and was on the dean's list all six quarters uh, that she was in school. Uh, and so it worked for us. And the sad part of this story for me is um, the whole 20-ish years that we homeschooled, I saw maybe a handful of Black families. And there are a lot of myths um, about homeschooling and why um, it's not more openly embraced by Black families. Although statistically, Black families do comprise the group, uh, the fastest growing group of homeschoolers. And that was starting even before the pandemic, uh, when everybody was a homeschooler, right? Um, and so during the, the pandemic, um, we saw a, a lot more, but it was already the fastest growing demographic in homeschooling. And I believe that's for a lot of different reasons. One of the common myths is that you can't homeschool unless you're wealthy. And I can absolutely disrupt that, that uh, myth. We lived in California, which, as you know, is a very expensive place to live. Not only did we live in California, but we lived in Silicon Valley, which is like the most expensive place in California to live. And we did it all on one income and three children. So it is possible. Um, sometimes it means creatively being able to work from home. But in this age of COVID, uh, a lot of people are working from home anyway nowadays. And a lot of places uh, do look for remote workers. So that life-work balance uh, is a little easier to achieve. So I, I think that that's a, a, if it wasn't a myth, it's certainly something that's changed now to make it more attainable to more families. Um, the other one is, and I know that uh, some families may need childcare uh, for families that do have parents that work outside of the home. The other issue is um, the, the myth that you have to have school from eight in the morning till three in the afternoon. And really the regulations, and you have to check for the regulations for your state, but generally speaking, the only regulation I remember that was really set in stone and, and in many states is how many days, uh, instructional days out of the year that you need, but not so much how many hours. So you could homeschool from six in the morning until eight in the morning when you need to leave for work. You can homeschool from six in the evening to eight in the evening. Um, and what you'll find with homeschooling is generally speaking, you're able to accomplish so much more in such a small time because a lot of what goes on in um, traditional schooling is that you find that it's a lot of busy work. You know, you're lining up to put your jackets on to go outside and, you know, it's crowd control. And when you eliminate that particular aspect of school um, and some of the behavioral stuff, uh, you can really accomplish a lot in just two to three hours a day. 
So until my kids got older, like in high school, where we had to really document what they were doing for college transcripts um, or high school transcripts for college, uh, we really were able to accomplish things a couple hours a day, three hours a day. Um, and then, you know, the things that we did outside of the home, all the lessons and things that we went to. Um, but as I was saying a little earlier, you're able to uh, work with children's body clocks. I had some kids that woke on the crack of dawn, some kids that woke at the crack of noon. Uh, and so you were able to accommodate body clocks and get the best peak performance out of kids when their uh, best hours for brain activity uh, were uh, engaged. Um, we also uh, did a lot of child-led, whole child learning, things that they were interested in. So we had a kid that was interested in robotics, which gave us uh, geometry, uh, science, uh, research projects. Uh, so we got all of those uh, subject matter things uh, covered, all the curriculum areas covered in one thing that he was interested in. Uh, I had a kid that was interested in Capoeira. So we had a foreign language, which was Brazilian uh, Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese. Um, uh, it had PE. It had uh, history because it's rooted in the Afro-Brazilian slave trade. Uh, and speaking of which, we got our history correct. I know that's one of the issues. Now, this was you know, many years ago, but now with CRT and all of the things, and we'll talk about that a little bit later with our guest today, um, there are a lot of misconceptions about uh, people's history. And so I wanted to be able to teach black history and teach it correctly. So you have a lot of autonomy over what it is that you teach. So for us, it worked very, very well. And as you can tell by the success of my children, um, you know, it was a successful strategy for us. So I think that um, I would love to see a day when more black and brown families uh, embrace this. And as I said, we're seeing that demographic change. On today's show, we'll talk to one of my favorite voices in the education space. And later, DK joins us for the wrap up. One of the perks of hosting this show is the opportunity to meet some really interesting people. And sometimes that leads to actually becoming friends, as is the case with our guest today. Gerard Robinson is a fellow of practice at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. Commissioner of Education for the State of Florida, Secretary of Education for the Commonwealth of Virginia, and was a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He is the co-editor of Education for Liberation, The Politics of Promise and Reform Inside and Beyond America's Prisons, and Education Savings Accounts, The New Frontier in School Choice. In addition, he co-hosts The Learning Curve, National Education, the National Education Podcast. Welcome to the show, Gerard. So good to see your face, so good to hear your voice. I was so excited to see your text um, and said, hey, you want to join the show? And I responded immediately. This, It's always good to be with you. It's always good to have you. Now, you are currently a fellow of practice at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. Tell us more about this organization and what a fellow of practice is and does. Great question. So the Institute is affiliated with the University of Virginia. It was founded over uh, 27 years ago by a sociologist at the University of Virginia named James Hunter. And so right now you hear the term culture war. Well, he actually wrote a book 
uh, more than 25 years ago with that title, Culture War. And so I joined uh, over two years ago uh, to be a part of a group of fellows who do three things. Number one, um, contribute to the intellectual community at the Institute itself. Number two is to focus on a particular item or items of scholarship. Mine, of course, is education, criminal justice, entrepreneurship, social mobility. And the third is to be involved in the uh, public marketplace of ideas, conversations like this. Uh, I'm a fellow of practice uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, unlike some of the scholars who have worked in universities their entire life, uh, I've worked in the policy arena, having worked for two Republican governors, uh, Rick Scott in Florida and uh, Bob McDonald here in Virginia. Uh, I've worked for uh, state lawmakers in both California and Virginia. I've worked for a superintendent. So I've had a chance to see policy and education through practice as well as research. So that's why I have the title Fellow of Practice. And I think one of your big accomplishments also was that you uh, led the transition between the Obama administration and the Trump administration, the education, and that was huge. That was, a, that was really yeah, great to no, see. No, no, I was, was proud to be a part of a group of uh, 13 leaders um, to work on the transition team. Uh, these are people you wouldn't see. Uh, it was a, a different organization. On camera, you would see people from the campaign, but there were actually people um, in the uh, Trump administration whose job was to put your head down and to write policy. And so I had a chance to work on pre-K-12 and higher education policy. You are a prominent advocate for charter schools. What do you believe to be the advantages of charter schools uh, over public schools or other alternatives such as private schools, magnet schools, homeschooling, those sorts of alternatives? So my first introduction to charter schools uh, was in 1992. So I guess it was 30 years ago. Uh, at that time, California was the second state in the nation to have a charter law. Uh, Minnesota was the first state in the country to do so. Um, 30 years ago is when I was in Los Angeles as a fifth grade teacher at the Marcus Garvey School in Los Angeles. And then we had, uh, which still is the largest and most costly uh, urban riot in American history, nearly $2 billion worth of damage, thousands of people arrested, hundreds of people dead. And during that conversation in the community, people began to talk. Uh, we were out of school for at least a week, some schools two weeks, but it provided people in our community, and I grew up in the Crenshaw District of Los Angeles, it gave us a chance to say, well, what do we do about education? So charter schools, obviously, uh, um, a part of the conversation that was moving more toward the fall uh, than the exact moment that it happened. In fact, the following year, I worked for Senator, um, I worked for a state senator named Bill Leonard in 1993, being the following year, we actually introduced legislation to expand uh, the charter component. So my conversations early on board, 30 years ago, same today, number one, charter schools are public. Uh, and like public schools, they can't charge you tuition to go. Uh, number two, charter schools are focused on theme-based innovation models, very similar to magnet schools. And public magnet schools have been around much longer than charters. But unlike magnet schools, in charter schools, you don't have to take a test to get in. Unlike some charter uh, magnet schools that are created to focus on integration and diversity, um, and they're all what I call color coding classrooms, and I've written an article about that as well, um, we're taking students where they are. Third, Charter schools often take students who are one to two years behind academically in reading and mathematics, 
We've got uh, data coming out of the Credo Center um, at Stanford, which has shown the impact of being in a charter school with a high quality teacher and the growth in both uh, academic as well as uh, a, a social gain. So charter schools are here to stay. Uh, unfortunately, 30 years later, you have uh, many leaders of the Democratic Party who've turned their back on charter schools. Now think about that. The first charter law in the country created by Senator Young in uh, Ember Young in Minnesota, she was a Democrat. Gary Hart in California, he's a Democrat. One of the early states of Massachusetts, uh, you had um, former Rhodes Scholar, working class Irish kid, um, uh, Brecken, uh, Breckenridge, his name will come to me in a minute. Uh, he started it. So the movement for charter schools were started by Democrats. At the same time, President Bill Clinton's in office. He's the one that helped create a charter school office within the U.S. Department of Education. He was the one who had a conversation or a speech before the NAACP, not only talked about charter schools, but mentioned that Rosa Parks was trying to start a charter school at that time in Detroit. Fast forward, President Biden uh, very early on when he was running for office and even now has stated that he is more lukewarm than his colleague, President Obama, who was a big champion. So for the last 30 years, every president, Democrat and Republican, has supported charter schools. Now there's a shift. Part of that's driven by a stronger push from the teacher unions, which have never been big fans of charter schools, although in fact we have charter schools that are unionized. So it's a unique spot in American history where it's not a bipartisan issue that within the Democratic Party is becoming more fractured. But charter schools are here to stay. They're going to continue to grow. Are there some horrible charter schools? Absolutely. Have we had to close some? Yes. But to think that charter schools are destroying public education, taking money away, and not playing a role in advancing people to move them from uh, promised prosperity, the research just doesn't show that to be true. I want to explore that a little bit because um, I, I, it could be a game changer, particularly for uh communities of color. So uh, according to a poll from the Brookings Institute, while most Democrats of color support charter schools, charter schools are only supported by 20 26% of white Democrats. Why do you think that there is such a split uh, along racial lines among Democrats on the question of charter schools, particularly uh, as we've seen the success with the demographics that come out of charter schools, some of the ones that you've quoted in terms of reading and math and, and those scores. So if you look at the makeup of the charter school sector, uh, near majority are black and Hispanic. Uh, if you look at the American, if the, the uh, traditional public school system, the numbers are a little different. Uh, I think one reason you find more Democrats of color supporting it is because they're the ones who are often living in zip codes where the uh, handoff to middle to high school may be a challenge and they want something different. Number two, uh, education going back through the end of slavery, through reconstruction, through Jim Crow to, the, to today has always been an important um, conduit or path for us to go into middle class uh, um, status. Public schools, even independent of charter schools, have been a way for black leaders to gain leadership position in public policy at the local level and then move forward. Now, when we're talking about uh, white Democrats who are against it, there may be a lot of reasons. Uh, I think some simply believe that if you're not in a traditional public school, then you're somehow against public education. There are some who say that. Uh, there's some uh, white progressives and Democrats who say, I don't support charter schools simply because it takes money away. I got it. 
You have some who are philosophically against the issue because they say it goes against the spirit of Brown v. Board of Education. And there are some who simply say, I just don't like charter schools because they're all for profit, even though we know, you know, over 85 percent, in fact, are not for profit schools. When you see that type of dichotomy within the party, it shows some very interesting splits. I think it's been there for a long time. Even when Bill Clinton uh, was supporting it, it was there. But the real test is not only when Obama was elected, but how did uh, uh, white Democrats who voted for Obama, how did they treat Arne Duncan? I wrote an article that you can find on the 74, talk about the role that President Obama played in changing the Democrats' ideas of reform. And to look at how the teachers unions went after Arne Duncan. They voted against him on a couple of occasions at meetings. One wanted to censure him. They said he was focused too much on charter schools, too much on accountability. Look at how they went against John King, who was going up to secretary of education. Even though John King was ultimately approved by the Senate, one of his senators from New York voted against John, who had a proven track record of helping uh, New York public schools when he was commissioner. John King, the same guy who worked in New York City, worked with helping to create charter schools, who benefited from public schools. His family, his mom and dad, uh, they died early. We talked about the role that they played as educators, but the role that public schools played in helping save his life. Because he supported charter schools, they went after him. So in many ways, there's a line drawn between are you for us or against us? Not are you for opportunity, not if you're for equality, not if you're for breaking the cycle of poverty, but either you're for us or against us. And the line of demarcation, unfortunately, for many uh, white uh, Democrats is the charter school issue. You're absolutely right. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. What is an E-I-S-T-C-P, and why do you say they are an educational beacon of hope in Virginia? So the um, education tax credit in Virginia was created uh, by Governor Bob McDonald. Uh, an educational tax credit program allows you or me, let's say we're both living in Virginia, to make a donation to a uh, scholarship organization. Uh, we can receive up to 65% of a credit to our state taxes. And the money can be used to give to a student to go to a private school throughout the state. It could be a Catholic school, a Jewish school, a private independent school that's non-sectarian. Uh, it can go to a number of schools. And so in a recent op-ed uh, that I wrote, partly in challenge to a very, uh, let's just say, one-sided view of the tax credit program, where well, the author of it basically said it's just a tax scheme. It's giving Gerard an opportunity to give money, to divert money that would have gone to the public school to a nonprofit, who's then going to give that money to allow wealthy kids to go to private schools. Well, first of all, the program is means tested, as are many state uh, um, education tax credit programs in the country. Uh, if you have an income up to 300 percent of poverty, you qualify. If you have a student with a special need and you're at 400 percent, you qualify. So it's not a lot of rich people. Number two, yes, wealthy people, in fact, donate are, um, to this charitable organization. Guess what? A lot of wealthy people donate. So that's mm -hmm. nothing new. Third, there's also, given Virginia's history, the question of whether tax credit programs or public money going to private schools is going to lead to the resegregation of schools. Now, I have to often remind some of our friends on the right who support school choice 
that there was a time in Virginia's history where freedom of choice meant something very different. It was following the Brown v. Board of Education decision, following Brown v. Board II. Virginia was a leader in the, in the massive resistance movement. It was one of the signers of the uh, Southern Manifesto, which basically said, we're going to revolt against what the Supreme Court did. And so there was a history. I call that history fear-based choice. What we have today is freedom-based choice, very different. Very different. Um, one of the biggest issues in Virginia's last gubernatorial election um, and in debates about education nationally, even today, is whether critical race theory should be taught in public schools. Many flatly deny that it's even being taught, saying that it's at university level only. What are your thoughts on teaching CRT to kids? Yeah, that's I've got a nuanced view on that, because during the election, people were saying, CTR isn't being taught in the schools because it's not a part of our uh, standards of accreditation or standards of learning. So from a technical standpoint, that's true. But I spoke to too many parents who said, well, you can say that if you want to, but here's the book that my student uh, is right. using in class. So it's going on. I've got a, a different view. My problem on face value isn't critical race theory, it's crazy race theory. And crazy race theory is focused on the fact that we're saying that all white people are evil by birth. Right. That somehow that they're bringing over our ancestors to Virginia in 1619 makes them culpable for life. Just that somehow they just can't get away from the original sin and that until they do A, B or C, nothing will change. I think crazy race theory overlooks the fact or the role that white people played in the civil rights movement. Um, people who That's gave right. their lives to move American progress going forward. I call that uh, crazy race theory. I'm not for that. Critical race theory, I don't think is radically different than what I was doing 30 years ago when I was a fifth grade teacher talking about the arrival of 20 Africans to um, um, Jamestown, Virginia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I also said, well, remember in 1526, you had Spanish who brought Africans to Florida. Mm -hmm. And so if it's 1619, we can actually go back further. So I do think that we need to have a role. Do I think we need to have a critical conversation? Yes. Now, can critical race theory be divorced from crazy race theory? Yes. But I don't think that simply having a critical conversation about race, talking about our history, good and bad, is a bad thing. But I'm also glad to see 1776 and the role that Bob Woods and others are playing because our history in America is very nuanced and complex. You don't have a 1776 without a 1619 but you can't talk about 1776 or 2021 without the others. So I think there's a role for CRT, but not for crazy race theory. I am so glad that you phrased it that way because I absolutely 100% agree. And again, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to homeschool because I didn't feel like people were getting our history correctly. And when my youngest was doing capoeira and we were studying the Afro-Brazilian slave trade and all those other things, I mean, absolutely it contributes to our worldview. Um, but to treat, as you said, you know, this whole kind of original sin that you can never get away from is crazy. And, and so I'm glad you framed it in that way. Now, you uh, mentioned uh, that parents have approached you to complain that uh, they've worked for decades to be able to afford to send their children to college, only to have that opportunity taken away from them by the actions of a criminal who can then attend college for free uh, while they're incarcerated. Uh, how do you respond to that? A great question. So let me give you context. Um, I've worked in education and criminal justice going back to 1989. Most people wouldn't know that. 
I was at Howard University in Washington, D.C. I was a junior. And I ended up volunteering for two years to work in a program called HITS, High Intensity Training Seminar. And it was created by a forward-looking Superior Court judge to this day, I don't know who she or he is, but it provided me an opportunity to work with young men, mostly African-American and Hispanic, who had one foot on a banana peel, one foot in, uh, uh, in jail. And the judge said, listen, I'm going to put you in a diversion program where you can work with college students, military personnel, D.C. government officials, adults, and others to really wrap your arms around. So from that two-year experience, I learned a lot. But one thing that was really interesting, it wasn't that they came from um, high-poverty households, nothing new. It's not because they came from mostly single-parent households, nothing new. It's not because they got in trouble with the law, nothing new. The one thing they all said they wish they would have had was strong literacy skills. Literacy not only in reading, but in mathematics. And it was across the board. And so that's one of the experiences uh, going to Howard that made me decide to become an educator. Well, as you move through the system, I'm working with adults who are currently incarcerated in American prisons, um, you know, know, 2.1 million, including both those in federal and state. And so I support, for example, allowing someone incarcerated to have access to a Pell Grant. But the pushback I get, which is real, mother uh, who has a conversation with me say, wait a minute, a person, you know, this guy or gal killed my son. I'm now having to raise my grandchild. I'm going to have to take out a second mortgage on my home to send my grandchild to college. And yet you're going to give this murderer or you're going to give a rapist a Pell Grant so that they can go to college for free. First thing I say is I offer my condolences to my to that family member who had that kind of tragedy. And yes, it's real. They've put, taken on a financial and human challenge as a grandparent they didn't expect to have. But I said, now, why are you saying that? Let's put a few things in context. Mm-hmm. Number one, you qualify for a Pell Grant because of your income, not because of your crime. Meaning that someone who's in prison today, if he or she were in the free world and met the income guidelines, they would qualify for a Pell Grant. So that's number one. Number two, the Pell Grant amount, we'll just say, uh, I haven't looked at the latest number, around 5900 That's not a free education if you're going to Howard, Harvard, Stanford, or Bowie State. That money is used to help you move forward. Number three, 75% of the people who are incarcerated today will come out of of, of prison at some point. Unfortunately, actually, it's 95% of the people will come out one day. 75% often return to prison within five years. Well, research from RAND, research from scholars at Howard University, research from scholars at different uh, universities across the country have identified that if someone who's incarcerated participates in a correctional education program, be it adult basic education, secondary education, associate degree, baccalaureate or otherwise, 43% less likelihood that he or she will return to prison. A follow-up study of that showed uh, a good number, lower than 43, but showed that simply being involved reduces recidivism. So I tell the mom who said that, you know, I want to make sure that you have an opportunity for your child to get a Pell Grant, but simply providing someone, person who killed your person, an opportunity not to get it is out of line with what our, our, um, our education system allows. But maybe this person will be the one who will come out, change his life, uh, become an entrepreneur, start a business, and maybe provide some other opportunities. It's not a great answer for everyone. I'm telling you, it's tough, but it's a position that I take and it's what I'm gonna stand for for the foreseeable future. And see, that's one of the reasons why I admire you so much because we do think so much alike. And I agree with that. You mentioned your background growing up in Crenshaw. I 
grew up in the Western edition in public housing. So, you know, education was the absolute door out for me. Um, and I think it should be, I think it can be for many others um, if they just have that opportunity. Um, and so crime and education, I think are inextricably linked that the quality of life for someone um, who does not have the educational opportunities to better themselves to then get a better job. And they're all like stairs, you know, they, they stack on each other. And so you're absolutely right in, in raising that point. You just reminded me of something. When I tell people that I support providing a Pell Grant to an incarcerated adult, I tell people I'm not soft on crime. I believe right. you do the crime, you do the time. That's right. So I'm not soft on crime. I'm just smart about time. Let's use the time they have smartly to minimize the probability that it will come back. And in the report, I had a chance to put together called A Story to Tell. It's a report that contains essays from 11 men and 11 women who talk about what it was like pursuing an education during incarceration. Some of them are now in a PhD program. Some of them are now entrepreneurs. One of them now is at Morehouse College who talked about what it was like. I'm not going to use the language uh, on, on how he opened up his first sentence, but you have access to that report. It changes people's lives. Yes, they're still victims. And in all the work that I do, we need to make sure that we take care of the victims of crime. I just want to be smart about time. If you're just joining us, our guest today has been Gerard Robinson. He is the uh, author or co-editor of Education for Liberation, The Politics of Promise and Reform Inside and Beyond America's Prisons. And he has a podcast, The Learning Curve National Education Podcast. Gerard, how can people continue to follow your work and where can they follow uh, find you online? So they can follow me on Twitter. Uh, is GTR924, no, it's Gerard underscore 924. Uh, you can also find me, Gerard Robinson, on LinkedIn. Uh, you can go to the Learning Curve podcast. Every Wednesday at noon, uh, we upload our latest interview. In fact, we interviewed someone you'd be interested in, uh, Dr. Angel uh, Parham. She's a sociologist here at the University of Virginia. She homeschooled her two daughters. And her two daughters are doing exceptionally well. In fact, uh, she was bragging, rightfully so, about uh, one of her daughters earning an A-plus in college-level uh, Latin. Uh, she just published a book on yes. the Black intellectual tradition. Uh, she co-authored it with a scholar. And they're talking about linking the classics to biblical texts to the Black intellectual tradition. So it's definitely a book yes. worth checking out. And she is a major proponent of homeschooling. And let me say why I have you. You are a pioneer in this conversation about the role of Black people in homeschooling. When you and I first met, you were talking about homeschooling. I didn't grow up knowing any Black homeschoolers. It wasn't until I was older, going to a meeting in Milwaukee with the Black Alliance for Educational Options, where I later had an opportunity to become president, meeting people who had homeschooled their children, who themselves were homeschooled in many, um, Wisconsin, going back to the 30s and meeting mocha moms in DC who were arrested yes. in the 80s. And I was like, you were arrested for homeschooling and just having them educate me because I was ignorant. And now you have people who are talking about, look, 16% growth in black families yes. and homeschooling. So the role that you played and me meeting a, a 700 member cohort in DC of homeschoolers were 70% qualified for Title I. Mixed race, children now at Oxford, children at, at different schools. So 
I want to thank you for the work you're doing because I'm still learning. But I can tell you the next move is homeschooling because all of a sudden it's not it hasn't always been for rich people. But all okay. of a sudden people are saying maybe it's not what I thought. So let me thank you for your role in this uh, this movement. Well, thank you. And and I appreciate those kind words. I, I do, uh, you know, we could get into a lot of different things, but, you know, doc, uh, talking to Dr. Carson about uh, inter- opportunity zones, you know, and those sorts of things, creating generational wealth. Yes. You know, we had Black Wall Street. Yes. That was decimated. Um, I grew up with Black businesses. That's all I knew in my neighborhood, right? So mm-hmm. I think getting back to uh, generational wealth, uh, we're seeing that now, as you said, because we've got these kids now that have been homeschooled that are going to Oxford and Harvard and all of these other schools, or just doing well in their fields, uh, exactly. but raising that income level for themselves and for their families, providing a completely different path. I mean, I was able to break that cycle of poverty growing up in public housing. I just bought my first house, 58 years old, but I bought yes. my first, well, I was 57 when I bought it, but, you know, bu- buying my first house. So, you know, yes. uh, that 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 is a game changer for our community. And also to mention, I'm a big proponent of college, but also a big proponent of going directly from high school to work. That's right. Uh, I think we're sending too many people to college who are underprepared for the work. We know that if you take a low income student and he or she spends three semesters in non-credit bearing courses and are struggling, great chance they're going to drop out with debt. Even though President uh, Biden has moved forward to forgive, uh, I believe it's ten thousand dollars. We're still talking about $1.7 trillion in debt, higher than what you have in credit card debt, higher than what you have in car debt. We're sending too many students who aren't prepared. So I'm a big believer if my middle daughter, who's now in high school, decides I want to go directly into the workforce. Now her mother's going to be mad and blame me for it. But I told her, we've given you the values, the skill set, the thinking, that if you want to go directly into the workforce, become an entrepreneur, go to the military, get a job, hey, I'm a lifelong learner. Do your thing. See, that for me was the thing. You said that literacy, for me, it's life. And and I I do agree that that's the path to it. But I wanted my kids to be lifelong learners. And so we've got a younger child that does have some uh, cognitive delays. And so it may be a trade school. You know, it may be going straight into the workforce. And you're absolutely right. We've got to stop stigmatizing that. And we've got to make that, you know, an absolutely uh, acceptable, viable path for our kids. So again, Gerard Robinson, who's been our guest today, thank you so much for joining us. And it was so great to reconnect with you. Look forward to it. Thank you uh, for this, but look forward to uh, future conversations. Thanks so much. And now that time of the day or that time of the show where we bring in DK. DK, come on in. Well, hello. There's that face. How are you today? Oh, As Batman Zoe. cap. You know, last week I said you didn't have a Batman cap, uh, uh, but it was a Robin cap. I did. I looked. I watched our interview. I don't normally watch myself. I don't enjoy watching myself. But because you were on, I watched, and you had a Robin cap. So this week it's Batman. So I'm, I'm versatile. Yeah, people. Think you are versatile like that. Caps. I, I've been known to uh, stretch, and it's an honor for me. Be able to speak with the real uh, pioneers. So well, thank you. My my kids <laughs> think I lived with the pioneers. You yeah. know, I've heard. <laughs> did you did you have a carton buggy? Did you know Moses? So oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a pioneer. Uh, so what did you think of our conversation today? Is there anything that that you felt uh, that you wanted to pick out and and wrap up today? Well, of course, of course, he's a very impressive man. He's the kind of guy I would love to see run for office one day. Yeah. Um, he would be an amazing asset for 
that's the whole spectrum of people. I did like the focus on homeschooling also. There's an interesting set of numbers associated with homeschooling, especially for the people in the Black community. It says here that um, by the first grade, a Black student is maybe a half year behind a white student in public school. Then it progresses. By the fourth fourth grade, they're a full year behind. By the eighth grade, they're two years behind. By the time they're seniors in high school, they're two to three years behind. So it gets worse as it goes along. However, it says here that um, black homeschooling kids, ho black homeschool kids are not only doing better than black public school kids, they're also doing better than white public school kids. And, uh, and the achievement gap between white students and black students among homeschool kids, uh, non-existence. So that's just one small example of um, alternative education and how we can benefit people in the black community. I know you have many others. That's absolutely right. We talked about those statistics from Brian Ray from Nary when he joined us. He talked about the black-white achievement gap and, and exactly what you just said. And I could tell you anecdotally, uh, you know my daughter. Uh, so, you know, she was a voracious reader. And when she was uh, 12, I guess it was started, I, I didn't test it before that. So it could have been much earlier. She was reading at college level. And in fact, she was doing SAT words uh, for her weekly spelling um, on the SAT list at the age of 12. So uh, when she was in sixth grade, fifth grade, um, she was doing college level work. And it wasn't until we were uh, at school one day, well, we were uh, at Starbucks, the office, you know, we're waiting mm -hmm. for uh, my oldest who was in band. We were doing her spelling test and she overheard me talking to someone saying that we got her spelling words from the SAT list. And she I mean, her jaw just dropped, you know, she's like, I've been doing high school work or college work. And I'm like, yeah. So yeah, it's absolutely true. But you set the bar, you know, and I think that that's something that we're missing in the black community now where parents were so involved, you know, they would go to, uh, school board, me, uh, P, uh, PTA meetings and those kinds of things. And they were very involved in their children's education. And, you know, um, that's, I think, a component that we are, are really missing now where uh, the kid, the parents are very, very involved. I know I would be at the school every day asking, what are the, they teaching? Gerard makes a great point about some of the CRT type stuff, the crazy stuff. I was at a school board meeting all day yesterday, state board where they've been talking about all this LGBT stuff and uh, some of the, um, I'm just going to call it inappropriate. There are some stronger words that could be used probably, but they, they are definitely disgusting books that, that should not be in the hands of our children as young as, I mean, I'm thinking about my daughter at middle school um, and, and some of the things that she would be reading had she been in public school. I'd have been there every day in someone's face asking, what in the world are you doing? So it's no wonder that we're seeing some of the effects of that um, with crime and all of these other things, um, because our kids are just so mixed up. Yeah, it's definitely a um, cultural problem among the black community. See, where I live in New Jersey, there's a heavy immigrant uh, community, uh, mostly from India. And I always tell the story that near the local high school, there's a public library. And by three o'clock, 3 p.m., after the high school session is over for today, that, has, that library is packed. You can't get a seat at any of the tables. 
and and every table you see a tutor with uh say an Indian child or a tutor with an Asian child. And of course you see tutors with white shells and they're going over papers and they're studying for tests that they won't have to take for another two or three years. And they're putting pressure on themselves to achieve more. You know, they're learning math skills and engineering skills beyond what's being taught at that high school. But what I'm not seeing often enough are black students sitting at that table and I think that's very unfortunate. Um, it's almost inexcusable because, of course, Black students face obstacles that some don't, but so do immigrants. They come to this country, many of them barely speak the language. They don't all come over rich, but they're, they're achieving very well. So I would like to see more of that reflected in our community as well. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, money doesn't have to be the barrier um, if you can't afford a tutor. Uh, there are other things that you can do. There are a lot of classes online. There's Khan Academy. There are so many things that you can do online now that are absolutely free. But you're right. It takes a parent to say, this is the bar. I mean, in my household, um, even though I grew up in a single household, it was never if you go to college, it's when you go to college. That was an expectation. Um, and so you know, as Gerard said, I mean, there are other things. There's trade school and, and going straight into the workforce. Uh, and those are completely fine. Um, but having the educational expectation that you're going to be a lifelong learner, even if it's not higher education in the sense of a college degree, but just that, you know, teaching your, you and I both uh, study foreign languages. We compete with each other on an app sometimes. Uh, well, it's but, not you really know, a competition. I'm just like... <laughs> You're, you're like so. We'll discuss that later. Uh, but you know, uh, but you movie know, and, movie and. <laughs> but being a lifelong learner, and like you know, I've read a hundred and I can't remember. I think it's a hundred and fifty something books this year. So always reading, always learning, always doing something. That expectation, communicating that to your kids, I think is really important. And I do have kids that are lifelong learners, so I feel really blessed. But you're right; that's a good point. Okay, well, I guess we will wrap up this week's show of African-American Conservatives. I'm Marie. I'm DK. And our guest today has been Gerard Robinson. And next week, we'll be back, same time, same place. Be sure to follow us on ACON, at ACONS, on Twitter, A-A-C-O-N-S. Follow us at ACONS on Facebook. And uh, also, be sure to like our podcast on YouTube, with bright news and also uh, everywhere that there are podcasts, well, Spotify and uh, also on uh, Apple podcasts, please make sure to subscribe. Take care. We'll see you next week. <laughs>